is a weird event that happened to you? Oh man, a ton of weird events. Like in my opinion, the coolest thing that happened to me, I'll give you that. You want that? Yeah. So, so I made a run one night and it was in, they weren't full blown projects, but they were uh, subsidized housing and they were like eight unit complexes all around and got a call of possible domestic. They heard somebody screaming. So I show up, I go up to the door. My partner wasn't there yet. I hear a lady inside screaming. I bang on the door. She screams. I kick the door in. She is in the middle of a getting stranger raped. There's a stranger broke into her house, climbed through the window, and was raping her. So I chased the guy through the window, end up catching him down the street. He got like 12 years in prison. Um, but just the things that, that you envision being a police officer, that this is why I do what I do, that was one of the times it actually came to fruition. And it was like, man, I didn't stop the rape, but I was at least there to break it up and catch the guy and, and put him in prison. So um, that's kind of the coolest thing, I believe. I mean, I've, there's been a ton of stuff. I've forgotten more probably than, uh, than I could even tell you. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome, 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 everybody. This is the first episode of 2023 for Murph and Morgan Game of Crimes. Actually, and as we're looking at the episode list now, remember, if you guys survived December with us, we took December off. We appreciate you guys hanging with us. Yes. We technically ended on episode 78, which was Dan Murphy. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this will actually be episode 79. The other ones were bonus episodes, so we don't count those in our episode list. So this will be episode 79. And we told you we were going to start off the new year with a bang. And Murph, you were actually able to set this one up for us. But before we talk about it, ah, so you've taken a breath, but before we talk about it, let's hop into the rest of the stuff. But first of all, we want to welcome you guys back. Thank you for letting us take a break for a month. We really needed it, had a lot of stuff to do. Um, and just having put out... Uh, stuff every month, including Patreon. It was kind of like we needed to recharge and re work on some things. So uh, are you recharged, Murph, or you sound like you're still uh, you're still convalescing there? Oh, man, I tell you what, I got some kind of sinus thing going at, at Thanksgiving, and it took a while to get over it, and I thought I was over it, and it's hit me again here at Christmas. So <clears throat> if you hear me uh, coughing, sniffing, snotting, I apologize to you up front. I'll try and hit the mute button as much as I can here. <laughs> hey, but first of all, we hope everybody had a Merry Christmas uh, or Happy Hanukkah. Uh, and then also that you guys had a great New Year's. Hope everybody stayed safe. Uh, that's the goal. Stay safe. Get home. And we want to thank you guys again for joining us. One of the, We're going to start out like we normally do. Hey, go over to Apple. Hit those five stars. It really helps us out a lot. Also, uh, Spotify has it now, so hit those five stars there. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. The guest we have on today has a book that comes out. You got to read it. You got, I mean, this, uh, this episode is very compelling. So you're going to have to do that. Um, also follow us on social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also make sure you also go over to game of crimes fans, uh, and deal with our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just answer a couple questions, get in the ballpark and join not only the main page, but the fan group. That's where the fun stuff happens, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's, let me tell you, the questions that she asks, if, if I can pass it, you can pass it. So come over and give us a shot. There's a lot of, there's a lot of funny stuff on there that, uh, our, our, our 
followers there, you know, the members of the club are, are uh, play us. <laughs> they're very, uh, they're very engaging. comical. Yeah. Yes. Engaging. They put some good stuff on there. Yes. And then this year, um, we're going to change it around. Cause I'll tell you where you got to be, where you got to be. And Morgan, where do you have to be? Well, Morgan, thanks for asking Murph. Where do we have to be? <laughs> <laughs> where do we have to be Morgan? Yeah. You got to be on Patreon, patreon.com slash game of crimes. We're going to be changing some things up this coming year. We're still going to get the same amount of content, but we've been doing some things for a while. So Murph and I are going to have a talk. We've been doing nine one one. What's your emergency that, uh, by the time you hear this, that will have come out on the first, and we talk about a very interesting case there, mm. uh, but we'll be looking at we'll be looking at mixing up some things. Still giving you content, but we want to we want to keep taking this to the next level. So head on over to Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of stuff there. I mean, everything you need to uh, hear about. We do our case of the month. We do our narcometer. We do our monthly Q and A. We've got all of our bonus episodes. Um, by the way. Your bonus episode, if you were a member of a, a Guardian of the Realm or Warden of the Throne level, your bonus episode for Narcos, the real DA Narcos on the real DA Narcos Cali edition, was Chris Feistel taking one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't want to know what that means, you got to come on to Patreon and check it out. Go to patreon.com slash game of crime, patreon.com slash game of crimes. One more time, that's patreon.com slash game of crimes. Here's how to order. So just make sure you head on over there. Um, and remember, guys, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously. But what, Murph, what's our standard disclaimer? Uh, we never take ourselves seriously. This is too much fun. It's serious topics that we discuss, but we're going to have some fun while we talk about it. And one of the fun things we do, it's uh, we, we, tell, we tell stories from around the U.S., around the globe. So, Murph, guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? What time is it? It must be time for Small Town Police Blotter. And we saved a couple of these stories, and this first one comes to us from Steve, not Stephen King. That's Steve, not Stephen King. Uh, and it's about a Pennsylvania man, Murph. Okay. You ever had, uh, you know, people do some strange things, like they get on PCP, right? They always strip and they get naked, right? Mm-hmm. But this is September. You're at a gas station in Ephrata Township, Pennsylvania, very small area. Uh, Jonathan Beck decided he would guess what? Strip down while he was pumping gas. Well, so I mean, he got you've never done that. Well, it's not what he did there; it's what he did afterwards. Oh, oh. After removing his clothes and exposing himself to other patrons, Beck got inside the bagged ice freezer outside of the store. Oh. <laughs> Did that suffer shrinkage? Shrinkage. <laughs> shrinkage. Oh. Guess what, Murph? You're going to be surprised at the charges. What you got? Indecent exposure, criminal mischief, public drunkenness, and possession of marijuana. Oh. Wow. Somehow about I meth, knew. Huh? Some, not meth, but rule number one, kids, don't do meth. Rule number two, if you're going to do marijuana, if it's legal in your state or commonwealth, is what Pennsylvania is, do it at home and don't do it inside the bagged ice freezer outside the store. So, I'm, But I'm sure afterwards the, the, the store, whatever branch it was, went out and emptied out the entire ice container, put in new bags, right? I would have burned that ice container <laughs> down. I just wouldn't have thrown out the ice. It's like, I don't know what you got, son, but whatever it is is not getting onto my ice. Oh, my gosh. But <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Oh, that's one of our Patreon sessions, isn't it? You can't make this shit up. Anyway, so... Um, Steve, we know that around this time of year, tensions run high in families, right? Some jealousy. Relationships kind of 
take an impact sometimes, right? So if True. you're dating and if you've got a boyfriend, a girlfriend, there might be some tension there. You might get jealous, right? So, Steve, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been jealous, but if you were or if a girl was jealous about you, I don't know that she would get to the point of where she would burn your home down. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> ah, but it's not what you think. Okay. Okay. A woman, Seneda Soto, was arrested after she set fire to her boyfriend's house during a jealous rage after discovering another woman had answered their FaceTime call. Hmm. However, we jump. I see you're jumping to conclusions. Uh huh. The mystery female was the boyfriend's relative. Oh. She was taken into custody, faces felony charges for burglary and arson. The bizarre ordeal happened on Sunday when Soto became enraged that her beau may have been two-timing her, broke into his San Antonio home. I don't know why. why where was JP? Where he could have prevented? Maybe it was JP. I don't know. Oh, my God. Oh, no, not JP. <laughs> not, JP. not JP. Broke into his San Antonio home, stole some items before setting a couch on fire that spread, causing the house to become engulfed in flames. As the house was burning, you know what she did? She FaceTimed her lover showing an image of the burning couch. So it's kind of like, hey, here's what you get. She goes, I hope your stuff is going to be okay, she said, before driving off in her gray Kia Optima. I don't know why they needed that, That just driving off in her car. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who has on the FaceTime call who hasn't been revealed turned out to be a relative of the friend. And it's called Bear County. You'll you'll see it down in Texas. It's spelled B X B E X A R, but it's called Bear County, not Bexar County. For some yeah. of you folks out there, the Bear County Fire's Office responded. There, video footage captures Soto lighting the couch uh, on fire. A laundry basket is filled with clothes. The scene toppled over. The fire caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. Well, I hope she realizes that she does not have a career in crime in her future if everything's on videotape. But well, the big question is, did he forgive her? Well, Murph, first of all, you just dated yourself. Nobody records on videotape anymore. All right. All right. <laughs> Figure of speech. Figure of speech. Well, hey, I don't know. I don't know, but uh, uh, she has a pretrial hearing set in December. All of these things happened in November Ooh. or December. All of these things we're telling you about, folks, happened within the last few, couple, three, four weeks. So, Steve. Unbelievable. Florida man. Hey, all right. Here we go, Florida. Uh, uh, Florida man. Guess what? What? Florida man said, wait till you find out what he did. But first of all, he says he does stupid things with getting when getting drunk. Uh, There's what? kind of an understatement, right? <laughs> if you know you're going to do it, why do you continue to do it there, dumbass? So the incident happened just before 5 p.m. on Wednesday, December 9th, or around that time, according to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. Do you know where Hernando County is? No. I have to look that one up. He looked that one up. Uh, this guy's name is Tarduno. Tarduno. Thomas Tarduno. T squared. Double T. You know, T2. T2 told detectives he was drinking at a bar in Spring Gill, Florida. Walked out shortly before 4.30 p.m. When he was walking, the man saw a patrol vehicle and decided he'd like to set it on fire. He got a bag of garbage from a dumpster, placed it under the patrol car, and lit the trash on fire. Well, if he's lighting the trash, he should have got in. Yeah, but I will give him credit for a little bit. After setting the patrol car on fire, he went back to the bar, but later returned to the crime scene to confess because, quote, he felt bad. He told deputies that he was intoxicated at the time and does stupid things when he's drunk. Duh. 
And I looked it up. It's due west of Orlando, of Orange County. It's on the coast north of Tampa. And please Fish. stay over there, jackass. Don't come over here. we got enough loonies as it is. Officials say that Tarduno was cooperative with deputies and said he was a professional arsonist <laughs> who had been convicted of similar crimes but said he didn't target the patrol car and claimed he would have set fire to any car in the location. Well, I wonder how you interview for a job like that. <laughs> I'm a professional arsonist. I'm a PA, physician's assistant. No, professional arsonist. <laughs> He's a DA, a professional dumbass. Yeah, well, that uh, kind of reminds me to a guy who used to hand out a card, and it said, like, you know, like, Bob Smith, DDS. And you go, what are you, a dentist? You know, like, doctor of dental science? No, I'm door-to-door salesman. <laughs> <laughs> but it got him into a lot of places. He handed the card, DDS. No, door-to-door salesman. Anyway, thus into the reading for today. P.A.S. Udamine Donaeus Requiem. That is our first set of stories for this year. And you know what we might be doing, too? Let's throw it out there. Do you like Small Town Police Blotter? Do you want us to focus on other stories? You know, do a different section? So just get, seriously, go to the website. Uh, actually, go to the Facebook uh, fan page and, and the fan group. If you're one of the cool kids that are in the fan group that have passed the entry test administered by Sandy Salvato, our mafia queen, uh, just give us some feedback. We're, what we're looking for is we, we are kicking off this year. We're going to be making some changes on the back end. You may not realize for a while we're actually talking to a new company we want to host with. Uh, and th- it sounds promising so far. So, but as with anything, just give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. Exactly. This is all about you guys. I mean, we love to bring the, the special guests on here. The comments you send us are fantastic. You love hearing the long form. You love hearing the inside story, like the personal touch that the, that our interviews bring out. So this is all about what you want to hear. So if you don't tell us what you want, you're going to continue to get the same thing. Right? That sounds like a threat. <laughs> y'all ate these carrots and y'all love them, kid. Damn right. Damn All right. Well, hey, let's talk about this one. Let's set up the episode a little bit because you actually did the outreach on this. And this one, uh, as we said, when we kind of teased this out, made it did. It made national headlines. Protests happened. A lot of bad things happened around it. But Steve, as with anything, I learned so much from our next guest. I learned so much from the story that was never presented on the news. And that's right. the key thing. I mean, one of the key things you, you set it up, but let me throw this. We talk about this three and a half hours of an interview and they only used five minutes and the five minutes they used was done in such a way to make this next guy look bad. Yeah, it was terrible. And, and a shout out to our, our friend Wayne Snett out in Oklahoma who made this introduction for us. Uh, John Mattingly is our guest. Now, I'd, I'll be honest with you, I'd never heard of John Mattingly until Wayne told me about him. <clears throat> and doing some research, we've all heard of the Brianna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky, where the police uh, conducted a search warrant on an apartment, and she was inadvertently killed. And we are so sorry to her family for what happened out there. But the media is to blame for this because they didn't portray, they didn't reveal all the information. It was extremely one-sided towards against the police. Um, and John Mattingly is the only person other than Brianna who was injured throughout. The, he's the first police officer that was shot. He was the first person shot in this entire incident. And I'm, I'm just hesitating here because I just want to go into the story and, and tell the whole thing. But John's going to tell you the story, so I'm not yep. going to waste your time here. Well, let's, you know, and it, it's, it gets emotional. But look, folks, I'm telling you right now. What you heard on the news is not the story. And to hear right. the story and to hear it from John and to hear the first person account 
of what went on, why it happened, and how it happened, I think it's going to change your view of what happened in the case. Um, were mistakes made? As with any, there's not, no operation is perfect. Mistakes are always made. But the question is, what were the mistakes the way they portrayed them in the media, or were they far different than what was portrayed and what impact they actually had on the whole thing? So, hey, let me ask you this, Murph, before we find out the rest of the story, we have to get to the rest of the story. So do you right. want to hear the rest of the story? Absolutely. And, and wait till you hear, and I, I should have said this before, I apologize, I didn't. Wait till you hear the aftermath of what John and his family are continuing to go through. I mean, this is horrible. It's horrible what happened. Everything that happened in this story is horrible. But here you're going to hear the truth. So Murph, let's do it. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes? To all our listeners in 2023, you know what I'm getting ready to say. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. You got to hear this story and let us know what you think. Well, hey, guys. Dudes, dudettes, players, playerettes, uh, everybody in between, amigos, amigas. Hey, we told you we were going to kick off January with some very impactful interviews, and Murph has done a great job lining up this next one. Um, this is a case that has obviously captured the national attention, the headlines. But as we always say, there's two sides to every story, and what we do here is we get the sides of the story. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this case. It's the Brianna Taylor case, but more importantly, we want to get the law enforcement side of it. And so who we brought and who Murph found, uh, he wrote a book, Sergeant John Mattingly. It's called 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Brianna Taylor raid. And look, I got to tell you, man, again, it's it's an honor to have you on. So, hey, everybody, let's welcome to Game of Crimes, Sergeant John Mattingly. Woo-hoo! It's good, good to be here, Murph. Good to be here, Yay. Morgan. You may not say that when we finish yeah. with you. <laughs> you say that now. Wait till you get to know us, as I'll we bring say. It on. <laughs> hey, look, I, I wanted to lead off with the book because you wrote a book about this whole thing, and I just want to use that to book into it. I don't want to get into it yet. I just want to let people know that's out there, and that's what we're going to be talking about. But as we do with everybody, look, I think for people to understand this, I mean, I think you had 21 years in, right, uh, with the PD? Yes. So, but how, you know, we always say, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours? I mean, you know, t- you take a bet one night, end up in your underwear in front of a police station, raising your right hand. What was <laughs> Man, the deal? It was almost that good. No, I, I was raised in a very um, poor neighborhood in Louisville. It's called the Portland area. It's right there by our West End, very urban. Um, so very diverse, very uh, crime laden. And growing up, man, I just saw so much injustice on the streets that it just rubbed me wrong. You know, my dad was a pastor, so I saw him in the community. Uh, we had uh, bus routes that went all over the communities in Louisville and picked up the unfortunate kids and brought them to church. And on top of that, you know, I would be at the store seeing the the drug dealers and they would hand off stuff to 12, 13, 14 year old kids who had nothing at home, no electricity, no water, no anything, but yet they had Jordans on and hundreds in their pockets. And, and, you know, they, I just saw them using these kids and I saw the old people get uh, just abused in that neighborhood. And all that lit a fire in me that said, man, I don't want to be on that side of history. I want to be on the side that tries to help. And I was honestly, I feel like I'm, you know, we, we joke around, why'd you get in this, this, uh, this industry, and it's like, oh, to help people. But that's quite kind of the catchphrase everybody says. But that was a legit feeling in my heart growing up that, you know, number one, 
police are cool. You know, when you're a kid, you either want to be a police, fireman, or, or military. I know. Don't say fireman. Nobody wants to be a fireman <laughs> and hang out in a freaking place and eat and well, sleep, you know, 24-7. Before you know any better, when you're ignorant, that's there what you, go. you think. Before you know any better. Yeah. yeah. Once you, <laughs> once you work with them, you understand. Um, but they can cook. I'll give them that. So uh, so that was just my heart. You know, just I, I saw the injustices and want to do something about it. Let me ask you a clarifying question here because I, I've been to Louisville many, many times. Is it called 4th Street Station? Which no, there's something called Fourth Street Live, and that's Fourth Street Live. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, that's the area that has the bars and the uh, downtown. Yeah, yeah, kind of a problem area, but not, not. I did not cause any problems down there, but I did learn something. And in fact, <laughs> right. one of the hotels I stayed at had a sign that said, "There's only seven proper ways to say Louisville, and Louisville is not one of them." Can no, you confirm that? That's 100 <laughs> percent confirmed. Even though we came from King Louis over in France, uh, we've uh, we've separated from them. Yeah, because I thought it was Louisville, like Louisville, you know, but it, there was no such thing as Louisville. No, no. If, if right. you pronounce it Louisville, we know you're not from Louisville. <laughs> and whatever you do, don't call it Louisville. Exactly. Yeah, Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. We're not in Texas either. <laughs> so how old were you when, uh, I mean, so, I mean, you were going through high school. How old were you when you took your first step towards getting into this thing of ours? Well, it's funny you say that. When I was 21, I took the police test. And back then, you know, three, 4,000 people were taking these tests trying to get on departments because it was it was a job that was desired. It was a career that what was— What year was that? That was, uh, let's see, 93, 94. It was 94 I took it. You're a, you're a freaking youngster. Hey, <laughs> what a young puppy. Man, I'm hitting 50 good. next month. I feel old. Uh, but so when I took the test, I made it to the next— uh, level. And my wife at the time was like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to be a police officer. You know, they all get divorced. They all do this, they, that. And, uh, so I put it off. And then in 97 or, uh, 99, I took the test again. I said, you know, it's been five years. This is still what I want to do with my life. Um, I was a manager at a, at a Thornton's gas station at the time and just unfulfilling. And, uh, I said, this is what I want to do. And so I took the test again. I got on. Now, my first wife was correct. Three years later, we split up, but I uh, had nothing to do with police work. And uh, she just had it in her mind that if you become a cop, you're getting divorced because there's such a high divorce rate. So um, I, I took that in 2000. I came on in 2000 and was sworn in October of 2000. So it's, it's been a great, great career, fun ride. So you gave up free hot burritos at the gas station to become a cop? Yes, and at the time, I had three kids at the time, right? And so they would come in, and there's like a, the big – used to be the big candy section in the middle where you, you got the gumballs out by the weight or the, the licorice yeah. or whatever. Man, they would just tear that up. So they missed that perk, but, you know, <laughs> the pay was much uh, – it's weird to say, but the pay was actually better on the police department than it was at Thornton's. Yeah, well, no kidding. So when you got on, let, let's talk a little bit about Louisville, uh, because you guys are more of a metro uh, area and a metro police department, right? Correct. Now, we weren't until 2003. 2003 That's is when I was we merged. Say, yeah, yeah. yeah, you got – that was uh, – you had a merge because I remember talking to some folks about that. Tell us tell us about the area, though. Tell us about the county. Tell us about Louisville population-wise, you know, things like that. Yeah, so we've got a little over a million people, according to the census. I think that's including the metro area, the entire uh, encompass of it. Uh, in the inner city part, there's about 650,000 people. And that used to be the old Louisville Police Department before we merged in 2003 with Jefferson County. Um, your outskirts are typically your your suburban areas. Our east end is the kind of rich area of town. And then you've got the west end, which is the urban area, which was encompassed most of the city 
uh, policing. And that's, that's a very poor neighborhoods, uh, run down, uh, very high in crime. In 2021, we had um, 186 homicides and over 800 shootings. So for a city of our size, we have uh, quite a you know, large crime rate. What what prompted them? Uh, you know, budget's always an issue, right? But when you were there, what were you guys told as the reason for the merger? And tell us how did how did that go? When you, I mean, you're merging huh. two departments. Uh, there's got to be a lot of upheaval, and you know, who's doing what and who's on first kind of stuff. Man, there was a a huge division for years: the old city guys versus the old county guys. Now, I'd only been on for three years, so it didn't really make that much of a difference to me. Even though I grew up in Louisville and I wanted to be a city cop, not a county cop, because I thought the county cops didn't do much. Um, and I wanted the action, but so there was a lot of division within the ranks there as far as well, I was city, I was county. And it seems like, like any other thing in life that government's run by, they, they took the worst from each department instead of the best. It could have been awesome. The things you looked at were like, man, we need this, we need that. And they looked at us and said, we need this and that. And we got the total opposite. Um, you know, we got rid of our white stripe and they said they got a Santa Claus belt buckle the way our, our belts were. So there was a lot of, it, it didn't, I don't think the promises that the city made um, ever panned out. You know, a lot of you're going to benefit, you're going to benefit, and that never really took place. What was the driver for the consolidation, though? What what, what was the reasoning that you guys were given for consolidating the two departments? Well, they just said it would be more efficient. They said um, uh, <laughs> government yeah. and efficient in yeah, the same sense. It doesn't go please. together. But, yeah. And, you know, it's still it's still divided. Here we are, what, uh, 18 years later? And if you live within the old city limits— your trash is free. If you live in the county area, you've got to pay for your trash service. So there's still, it's some weird divisive stuff still going on that, that never really, they never really merged everything. Um, I think they just brought all the money together so the politicians could have more personally, but, uh, yeah, they said it would be more efficient and, and, and it's been anything but. When you, when you were finally consolidated, how big was the department then? It was about 1300. And what were you doing at the time? So when you got on, let's talk, let's kind of rewind a little bit and talk about when you first got on. Um, how does your, you know, do you guys, I take it with somebody your size, you probably had your own academy? Yeah, we did. Um, we had, we were the only, we're the only department in the state that has our own academy. The rest go to, to uh, Eastern Kentucky and, and do it there. Even Lexington doesn't have a department? No. I mean, an academy? Wow. Not, unless they've changed it since then, no. Wow. So you guys had your own academy. What what was it like? How long was it? Uh, did you stay there? Did you go home? What was it? What'd you guys do? No, we were fortunate and able to go home. Uh, we weren't like the state police where those poor guys had to, you know, military type stuff and woke up in the middle of the night and all that craziness. I guess that's why they're so squared well, away, though. That's what you damn right, Murph. See, Murph, what I tell you? Damn <laughs> well, no, now we're talking about Kentucky State Police. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kansas starts with K2, so don't worry. K2. K2. What does what K2. K2 mean? Synthetic. K2 is what a is mountain. That? That's K2 is synthetic marijuana. KY was uh, Dave Mitchell, the <laughs> <Yeah>, Cali cartel. <laughs> we called him the KY Colonel. He was a Kentucky Colonel. Uh, and we said, oh, so you're the KY Colonel. And then that nickname stuck with him. So, anyway, KY yeah. Jelly, I guess. First digression, you guys can go ahead and drink. So, um, <laughs> so how long was your academy? It was 20 weeks. Uh, we did get to go home at the end of the night. And then once we got out, our field training was 32 weeks. So it was a total of a year. Wow. What wow. was the best part about the academy for you? What'd you like the best? Getting out. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leaving. Yeah. So, so fortunately, I went in when I was 27 and I had already experienced life. You know, I had three kids. So I had a different mindset than the a lot of the younger guys that were there. They, they were, I don't want to say I didn't take it serious, but I went in knowing they can't hurt you. 
they can't put their hand, you know, they can yell all they want, but they're not going to eat me. So uh, I had the mentality of, well, you know, I'm smart enough to pass all this stuff easily because it's on like a 10th grade level, I believe is, is what it was. Um, didn't have to study for any of this stuff. It was crazy. And, and I saw people fail and test. I'm scratching my head going, man, this is, this is so easy. How are you missing this stuff? Oh, just um, a good indicator. They didn't belong there. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I probably, my favorite part was, I mean, it had to be shooting. The, the shotgun for courses for a week or two weeks and our pistol for a week. That was, that was the best times. Oh, that's all the, that's all the weapons training you got. Yeah, that's it. Wow. Cause they were that good Murph. You got to remember this. We're, we're going back to the Kentucky, uh, <laughs> you know, going back to the revolutionary war and Daniel Boone and guys like that, that, you know, you know, the I original, think... I believe the original snipers came from Kentucky. Well, I've got kinfolk down that way. So good people in Kentucky. I think they were just cheap and didn't want to give us any more ammo, but (laughs) that's probably the truth. (laughs) We were trying to make this sound sexy. Come on. (laughs) But you get out. So what was training like for you? Uh, You know, how did they, how did they break the city up? How did they assign you guys? Um, you know, and to, to turn, because that's, that's, I mean, that was my training program on the state patrol. I mean, it took basically a year, a little over a year from the time we got into the academy till the time we were out on our own. Yeah. So we had four phases, eight weeks each. Um, they rotated you through each, each, uh, uh, day work, mid watch, late watch. Uh, and then your last phase, you were in the division you were going to stay in on the shift you were going to be on. So you worked with the guys that you would eventually work with, uh, but under a trainer for your last eight weeks. And I ended up on late watch and what was our third district at the time. It's the fourth division now. What is late watch? So to give us an idea of the hours. Are you guys were you guys on eight hour shifts, ten, twelve? On late watch we were on eight. Mid watch was on tens and day work was on eights. Uh, now it's all different. It's it's two twelve hour shifts now. I, I have no idea how that works, but um, we were on eights. We we went at midnight, got off at eight. And the the worst part about it was in the morning you had court at nine, and the defense attorneys knew what was up. They knew you know who was on what shifts. And so they would hang out or go disappear for a couple hours and, and make you wait to about 11 o'clock and then come in and, and say, oh, we're extending the case, hoping you would leave so they could dismiss it because that happened a lot. They'd wait you out and you're exhausted, falling asleep in the waiting room. And uh, it was just a pain. I, I learned I learned to hate court really early and realized what a circus it was. And let me yeah. tell you, that used to piss me off. You'd come in, you'd either stay late or come in on your days off only for them to go, oh, well, I think we're going to work something out. Well, you, you think you might've figured that out before you, you know, you screw with my sleep. But <laughs> exactly. No. Well, that, and I read that in your book, uh, John, and it just brought back memories that were not all that good. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> you're not. Court, well, court is never a fun time too, because you hang around for a long time only to get most of the time, unless you've got a really big case. Like when I was a detective, you'd work homicides, whatever. You might be on the stand for an hour or two hours. Most of the time your stuff is what? 10 minutes, you know, yeah. you're if hanging that, around for 10 minutes, five well, minutes. Yeah. You know, they pay our, our Commonwealth attorneys so poorly in the state of Kentucky. I mean, horrible rates. Police get paid more than the, the attorneys and they will not take many cases to trial. They want to settle everything they can at any cost. And it's, it's, it's mind boggling. It's frustrating. It makes you not even want to do it because you go in and, you know, they go talk to the judge and some little secret conversation happens and poof, case is gone. And then, you know, the judge and the attorney go to play golf afterwards. What fun. Not, not yeah. that that happens. They yeah. used to say, they used to joke that the only justice in the halls of justice takes place in the halls. You know, all of the discussions That's happen true. in the halls because by the time you get into the courtroom, most of the time it's, Worked Murph, up. this is a fancy term. It's called fait complete. It means it's already accomplished. That's you a fancy word. 
You know yeah. what this is? I have to. <laughs> just as much re-education in retirement is, uh, you know, one of our buddies says, Sparty Hawk. Anyway, so, but what, tell us a little bit too about the city of Louisville. So when you're in this, uh, you said third district, was that right? Correct. What, what's, what, what is that, what is the makeup of your district like? Is it residential, commercial, business? What have you got going on so there? So that division was a, a, so you've got your really, I don't know how else to say, you've got your really poor people and then you've got your regular poor people that are, are not quite middle class. That was kind of the division I was in. Um, it was very mixed. We had an area called Americana, which had probably 10 different races in there, several from Africa, from India, um, a very diverse group in a small area as far as that went. And we didn't have too much policing in there because most of those people from other countries took care of their own business and didn't want the police involved. Um, we had two projects in our division, one on the south end, one on the north end. Um, so those kept us busy at night. Um, and then you had just your normal, we did have one strip, it's called 7th Street, and it had some strip clubs on it. And uh, that, you know, you if you ever want to dope, you just ride through those strip club lots and jump out on the parked car, whoever's in it, and, you know, you're going to score every time. I bet you had to do a lot of club checks, though, didn't you? Go well, you in know, and see what was going on. It's a sacrifice, but, you know, you had to take time <laughs> out of your night. And I, you know, as a citizen, I want to thank you for your sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Merce asking, can I do a ride along next time? <laughs> yeah, it's I think with body thing. cams, it might be frowned upon now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything's frowned upon. Well, now. let's yes, talk is. about that a little bit, though, too, because those areas like that tend to bring in various types of crime from prostitution to drugs, you know, to, to violent stuff. What were, what was your, um, you know, meat and potatoes? What was your staple of activity that was going on in that area? What was the kind of stuff that you could always count on happening in your district? Well, when I first came on, uh, you know, crack was still a big thing and then meth took off about my second or third year in. That's when all the meth labs were, were blowing up all over the state and Kentucky had quite a few of them. Um, and so meth was the huge thing that we had to watch for as far as when you stop cars or go in these houses. But um, it was just the, the street level crime there. That's the main thing, because there was a lot of rob street robberies, a lot of uh, shootings that just took place because we had like these these pop up clubs that would happen with like uh, young people. And there'd be crowds of two, three hundred just pop up out of nowhere in, in some little house or building. And then there would inevitably be a shooting or a stabbing, and you'd have to go to it. Um, but it was just it was just your typical low income crime area. It wasn't it wasn't our West End because our West End had the more more violent stuff uh, where there was shootings, you know, two three times a day. Uh, but we had we had plenty of stuff to keep us busy. We got in a lot of car chases, a lot of foot chases, uh, just fun stuff, man. It was it was like a cops episode every night my first few years. Yeah, that's. I think a lot of our listeners think we're crazy to start with because we talk about the dangerous stuff being the fun part. Oh, it's a blast! You live it's for that adrenaline. Yeah. It is. It really is. Well, and you know the amazing thing about cops is you got to realize for your face to be on TV, you have to sign a consent form. So all of those folks that are in their little tank top T-shirts, they call them wife beaters. That's their statement, not mine. Don't don't everybody go apoplectic. You know that means for clamped Murph. You know. This means there's yeah, a double. That, Here's a double. Here's a double. I'm going to have to get um, my thesaurus out. Hold on a second. <laughs> I forgot. I wouldn't even uh, know how to spell that to look it up, so I'll be sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it's, but you, you were talking about all those things. It's like 
this is what you live for. But every every episode of Cops, you got to remember these people have to sign releases. So when you got the guy going up there, yeah, I hit her with the the meat sausage, you know, and banged her up the tickets. <laughs> the, the, the dude signed a release to get his fifteen minutes of fame, you yeah. know, on Cops. Yep. Uh, now, did you were you ever on a Cops episode? <laughs> No, Louisville wouldn't allow cops in town, but for about a year, year and a half, we had what was called Louisville cops, where they thought it'd be a great idea. They had a little studio in town that would come out and follow us around, a couple guys with cameras riding cars, and I always avoided it like the plague. I didn't want to be on TV. I didn't want my face out there. I didn't want any of it. But if you YouTube, I'm on YouTube. I was infamous way before this crap, and um, if you YouTube, I think it's Louisville cop falls over fence during drug raid, uh, you will get a, a video of my rear end falling over a rail. Okay, let's stop right there. We're going to well, they got your Hey, they got your best oh, yeah. What can we say? I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Louisville cop falls over fence during drug raid. Okay, so tell us. Well, let's let's talk about this drug raid then. Yeah. So, so I was, this was back, I had already left the beat and I was on what's called a flex platoon, which we did like uh, uh, street level narcotics, prostitution, whatever the major in our division needed. We were kind of at his behest. And uh, we were out doing a drug warrant. This is the first couple months I was there. Did you find it? <laughs> I found it. Yeah. Oh, you got to watch it. And you got to turn it up. Because whoever remixed that, at the time, our chief was Chief White. And they had a little video out trying to, you know, get people to come on the police department. I'll have to figure out how to get this uh, piped into here. But, yeah, you see the people coming up. It looks like a like a two-story yeah, little house. All right. Oh, that was, that, was, that was a cluster, man. So I was... I was new to this flex unit. I was all excited. I was enjoying going through doors. And on this one, I happened to be, I had to go out and gather information for my partner. So I sat oh, out man. on this thing for like five hours. I'm giving description of the house, giving people coming and going, giving cars, giving tags, but I'm about two blocks away. So our flex sergeant was a, a new sergeant or new to flex, never done dope. We had never really done dope. And uh, so we're all kind of learning on the fly anyway. And when, when they're on their way there, he gets on the radio and says, we'll be there in five minutes. I'm like, where you got me at in the stack? I'm thinking, <laughs> ah, you saw I it. Just saw, I just saw it. No, it's not Isn't just once. Awesome? They show it four times. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good rear end, isn't it? <laughs> All righty. Oh my God, man. That, that was a perfect one point landing, like yes. right on your face. Oh man. And, and, and so you go up four steps, that's four foot. You go over the rail, which is another, what, three, three and a half foot. Yep. And then mm -hmm. the, the backyard was a total drop off. So I dropped like 10 feet right on my head. <laughs> Hey, just so you know, we're not laughing with you. We're laughing at you. We're laughing oh, at you. There's you know a difference. What? I will take that over hate. You can laugh at me all you want, man. No. I've had enough hate for a lifetime, so give okay, me the laugh. This, this one is going on the website. So, yeah. uh, we, right. well, Once again, our, our, our listeners have heard us say a thousand times, you can't have thin skin in this career. No. Oh, no, no if, you can't, if you can't laugh at yourself, what are you going to do? I mean, I'm not going to well, cry. Well, let's, let's talk about the aftermath of this raid then, because um, how much grief did you catch once? Once it made oh, it out onto the news. So let me finish this story and I'll tell you about that. So I'm sitting on the eye all day. They come up. This new sergeant goes, take the rear. And I knew enough to know if I'm in the back of the stack, if I take the rear, it's too late. He's out the back door. And so I was ticked off. You know, I was mad. I sat there all day. I want to go through this door. And when we get there, I'm pouting, you know, mad. I'm late. They're already through the front door. I come trotting up. I'm being lazy. I didn't even put my radio away. I think I, I'm athletic. I'll go right over this fence. My toe catches it. I go face first down. I can't, 
I land on my wrist. I can't even get my gun out of my holster at this point. I climb back over this rail like a sheepish little fool. And the cameraman is at the edge of the house that recorded me and his camera's just bouncing. He's laughing so hard. <laughs> and I go up to him. I went, man, did you catch that? He went, yeah, but don't worry. I'll edit it out. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Man, I started getting calls. I think that came out on Sunday nights at like nine o'clock. By 9.30, my phone was just blowing up, people laughing at me, and it was great. I go to the jail to drop prisoners off, and two or three jail guards would come out and go, are you the guy that was on YouTube that fell over the fence? I'm like, it's me, man. Not only did they edited it, they put it back like in slow-mo. They did a whole thing, and they did a slow-mo. Four times. That's where where Chief White goes, do you have what it takes to be a Louisville Metro police officer? (laughs) I just saw him pop up there. It's like, oh, my God, that's even bad when the chief gets involved in it, rubs your face in it. (laughs) Yeah, it was was an experience. (laughs) So as they say, what did you learn from this experience, Officer Mattingly? Well— Put your gear away when you're supposed to have it away and quit pouting. Just do your job. <laughs> there you go. There you well, go. now let, let's talk about the aftermath of the raid, though. Did you get what you were looking for? Did you get who oh, you yeah. were looking for? Oh, or was no, it a got, success? It was a it was a huge success for especially for new drug guys. Back in the day, I think we got I think it was over a pound of of cocaine and um bunch of weed, which is, you know, no big deal. And then uh what else did they get? There's three different things got. I think they got crack with it. Crack and cocaine and then some weed. So it was it was a good draw for us, new young guys. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> You know what? It's one thing to tell the story. It's another thing when you can see it. And, yes. it, and your story doesn't do justice to just watching them do this, like he says, Murph says, four times. Here you come over the railing, and then it's like, oh, and then you disappear over the other side. Maybe that should have been my clue to get out of drug work. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll tell you. Nah, well, drug work's a lot of fun. I said all the cool things I've done in my career, diving over fences, cars, all the cool stuff. And that's what does on everybody video. remember. This is that's what you're going to yeah. That's it. I'm it. That's it. It's on YouTube. Well, gosh, how how many years were you into your career when that happened? Uh, five and a half, six. Okay. Yeah, because I did late watch for five, a little over five years. Then I went to our flex unit in two thousand five, and that's this was shortly after that. What is a flex unit? It's a unit that uh, is supposed to be flexible in the division. We 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 would always get the lower level co- drug complaints or just the citywide complaints as far as prostitution. Kind of like quality of life stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it was probably 90% drug work uh, okay. because most things, you know, most quality of life issues stem from drugs or from narcotics. And, Thefts uh, and burglaries and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Most things. So that's what we did. And it was fun. I mean, we had some good tight crews and, and being new guys. And, and this is one of the problems with the police departments though. They stick you in positions, give you a badge that says detective and do very little training on you on, on how to do it. It's, it's recreating the wheel every time instead of having experienced guys that slowly lead you into it. I think that's a mistake we make. Training has always been a huge issue. I mean, I know like with me, when I got on detective, it's like nobody really there to mentor you. You kind of figured this out on your own. You did stuff. Uh, I know Murph, when you got on right now, but, but you guys kind of had a program. Didn't, weren't you assigned with like a more senior agent, somebody to kind of mentor you or watch over you? Yeah. Well, even when I started as a city cop in West Virginia, you had a, a training officer for a while. You had to ride yeah. with somebody not quite as long. Um, although I've got hired in November, went to the academy, West, West Virginia State Police Academy in February or March. And that was three months. And then you come back out and you still rode with a guy for you know several weeks. But at DEA, you had a senior partner 
And that's the best thing you can do because that's that's where you learn the real job. I mean, John, I don't know if you've ever worked with DEA, but the report writing process is the worst in the freaking world. I mean, the we even had a class in the academy on 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 uh, form numbers because there's so damn many different forms and reports that you have to. Well, that's out. why they had TFOs, right? So they can write all their state warrants and they can scoot around the the all the protocols and then if it's something huge they'll adopt it. You're not so you're not supposed to figure that out. Oh man, they couldn't. Wait. Most federal agencies couldn't survive in, in cities without local cops. It wasn't the you're TFOs exactly right. who figured it out, Murph. It was the feds who go. It's easier if the TFOs do this. You oh know? yeah, 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 a lot easier. But it was. Uh, but you're right. It, you can't expect anybody. And it, and and that only not only applies to when you first get on the job. As you're getting promoted up through the ranks, especially when you're starting to get into leadership roles, just because you're a good cop or a good whatever your your career is doesn't mean you're going to be a good leader. You know, and it took DEA quite a long time before they finally sent, started sending new supervisors to leadership schools. There's leaders and there's managers, and there's a right. difference between the two, right? You got you got to oh, send, you got to develop the leadership skills. Um, yep. So, what made you decide to go to this flex unit? Was it uh, you just done your time on the street looking for something different to do? Uh, yeah, nar- narcotics was always like the thing that that I wanted to do, and uh, then naturally on top of that, I was tired of being on late watch. But more importantly, you got a plane car, you got you got to wear whatever clothes you wanted. Your schedule was kind of flexible. Apparently, you got to wear jeans, white tennis shoes, and a white shirt, and go over the railing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but you did have your vest on. That was a good thing. You did yes. have your vest on. There yeah. you go. So uh, that I mean, that was just kind of the draw. I mean, you know, the flexibility. I had three kids, like I said at the time, um, but just what I wanted to do, and so it got me in the door to doing that. And but that was a detective position, though. Correct. So l- let's start talking about that because we want to talk about working up, uh, obviously, into the uh, the event, the shooting. Um, what? So what? Tell us about your progression. You know, through the department at that point, did you stay in investigations then the rest of the time? No, in 2009, I got promoted. My sergeant at the time came to me. It was like two weeks before the test. And I'd signed up, but I hadn't studied because I was like, nah, you know, I don't, I don't want to do it. I like the, the unit I'm in, the crew I'm in. Um, and, and we get along great, and I'm having fun. So I was like, I'm not taking the test. Well, she came to me. She said, why aren't you taking the test? And I'd explain why. And she said, have you noticed who they're promoting? And I said, yeah. And she said, bunch of idiots. She said, do you want to work for them or do you want to work with them? <laughs> I went, yep. Kind of a good point. So I took the test, ended up getting promoted in September of 09, uh, had to go back to the street. And so I went to late watch again for about a year. And then after that, uh, a detective, a district detective unit opened up for a sergeant. I took it, uh, which is just all your crimes except homicides, um, business robberies. And so we ran all that. And I did that for about a year and a half. Um, and then I went back to a flex unit as a sergeant. When you said it was a district, uh, did you guys have a centralized then kind of like robbery homicide or major case squad that would handle the homicides and the other yes. things? Yeah, we've always had homicide, robbery. Uh, back then, even we had a uh, uh, street crime unit before they dissolved it and they picked up some of that, that type of stuff, the violent stuff. So if you had a homicide, then uh, what was the name of the unit? It was just homicide. That was it. Homicide. Okay. Criminal Investigation Division. So if you had a homicide, then the hom- obviously centralized unit, they would come in no matter where in the county, right, and work right. the case. Yep. You held the perimeter and they came in, did all the work. When you took the sergeant exam, what kind of thing, what, what was important at that time for them from a leadership standpoint? What were they looking for in their first line <laughs> supervisors? There was no leadership. It was learn. Uh, learn your SOP in law, 
and your contract. Those were the three things that the, that the written test was over. And after that, you had oral interviews, which were scenario-based. And so they brought people in from around the country, from other departments to, to grade you on it. You sat in there, watched a video, and then you had 15 minutes to write your response on a piece of paper and then present it. Um, what you thought you had a five minute presentation that you had to give how you would respond to these scenarios. One was, you know, a huge shooting event. One was a catastrophe over here with uh, chemical agents. And, and I can't remember what the third one was. And so it, it, it was kind of a joke because what they were looking for was not reality. I mean, we're calling in the buses to house people. We're calling it, we're shutting down our electric. We're doing all these things that never take place. You know, you're calling in the infantry. Well, none of those things are always available. Um, so it was basically a learning and regurgitation thing, not based on your performance, not based on your past, not based on peer reviews, which should have a part in it. Um, it was just simply learn, regurgitate. If you were a good test taker, good presenter, you got promoted couple of my buddies we had on the podcast that were uh, New Scotland Yard, they worked the 7705 train bombings. And I'm talking to one of those guys one time and they're talking about they went through their promotion exam, sergeant's exam. And he says, I was given this uh, very sticky situation. He says, I'm your standing guard when the queen comes out and she's attacked by the IRA at the same time a plane crashes into the Thames and the third time a bomb goes off. What do you do? He says, uh, take off me uniform and blend in with the crowd. There that was go. his response. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a no win. Basically, they give you no win situations and they want to see, you know, how you respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the more outlandish and the more crazy stuff you were able to think and add to these scenarios, the better you got. And you're like, I'll play the game and do it, but in reality, this would never, ever happen. Well, can you do you remember your responses? I mean, like you talked because we are going to talk about a shooting a little bit later. What what kind of shooting scenario was it? If you remember, oh man, I don't remember. This was two thousand nine when I when I did this. Um, it was I'm sure it was just some generic, probably a business shooting that led into hostages because all of it was based on. Uh, using all your your peripheral tools like hostage negotiation, SWAT, uh, the helicopter unit, the canine unit, uh, using our TARC buses to come in, like I said, and house people, calling in the Red Cross and having them there on standby. You had a food truck come in. I mean, all these things that as a sergeant, as a street level sergeant, you're not making all these calls. You're not doing all these things, but you had to to give that in your scenario. What they're not accounting for there, too, is when you're calling in all these resources, you're adding onto a budget which doesn't have any fluff in it at all. Right. You know, yeah. as no. I read in your book, you guys didn't get overtime. You got time off, right? For yeah, overtime. Yeah, we, we, they didn't have overtime until three years ago, maybe. All of a sudden, yeah. after you know, COVID and everything, all of a sudden, we've got all this money and there's just unlimited overtime. Plus, we're so short staffed, they have to fill the streets. So they're just, you know, I guess because they're not putting that money into, uh, you know, pensions and, and people's pay, they've got the extra money for overtime. Mm -hmm. I missed Man. out on all that, though. That sucks. <laughs> hey, well, other than you tripping and falling over the railing and, you know, being immortalized, there's the old joke. What's the difference between love and YouTube? What's that? YouTube is forever. You, YouTube is forever. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but um, let you know, we, you it was funny. You were we were talking uh, one of Murph's buddy. His he was kind of glossing by some things like you're about to do here, and we ended up finding out his first day on the job. He was out on his own. A, a naked guy on meth climbs through the window of his patrol car. So you know that was his indoctrination to work in the streets down in Dallas. Yeah. What is a weird event that happened to you? Oh man ton of weird events like in my opinion the coolest thing that happened to me i'll give you that you want that yeah. so so i made a run one night 
and it was in, they weren't full blown projects, but they were uh, subsidized housing and they were like eight unit complexes all around and got a call of possible domestic. They heard somebody screaming. So I show up, I go up to the door. My partner wasn't there yet. I hear a lady inside screaming. I bang on the door. She screams. I kick the door in. She is in the middle of a getting stranger raped. There's a stranger broke into her house, climbed through the window and was raping her. So I chased the guy through the window, end up catching him down the street. He got like 12 years in prison. Um, but just the things that, that you envision being a police officer, that this is why I do what I do. That was one of the times it actually came to fruition. And it was like, Man, I didn't stop the rape, but I was at least there to break it up and catch the guy and, and put him in prison. So um, that's kind of the coolest thing, I believe. I mean, I've, there's been a ton of stuff. I've forgotten more probably than uh, than I could even tell you. Well, we just had uh, we just had Dan Murphy of NYPD. We had a couple of buddies of mine from NYPD on before, and they they have some funny stories. So, uh, but you know, one of the fun things to do is always is to play practical jokes on other guys. Oh so, yeah, we did that. Uh, so have you got a good one you want to share with us? Well, uh, yeah. Well, the one just pops in my head right now. We were at we were at a gas station filling up because, you know, you had your gas cards. You had to go to certain stations. And usually after roll call, late watch guys, three or four of us would go to a certain gas station, fill our cars up, go in and get a drink, talk for a few minutes. Um, well, you know, the, the, the little red emergency button on your radio or orange, whatever it was on your radio, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. if you press it, it, it puts out what we had, ours was called 1030, the emergency signal. And and the radio would start checking on you. And if not, they'd send cars your way, you know, code three and, and all that. So I had mine on this table that had some straws and a bucket and a few other things around. I walked back to use the restroom and my, one of the guys I worked with took, hit the button and dropped it down into the straws. So I come back and like, man, what did I do with my radio? I go back to the bathroom and check, come out, and I hear the tones going off on the on their handhelds. And I'm like, man, what's going on? You know, because as a younger guy, you're like, yeah, where's this at? We're going. Uh-huh. And uh, and they start laughing. And then I hear my code number come out, and they keep checking me. I'm like, somebody give me a radio. But you got a call from your radio because they want to see your encoder. And so finally <laughs> I dug it out of the straws, and I get it out. So I walk back out to my car. Ha, ha, funny, right? So I walk out to my car. The guy that did it, his car was right in front of me. Well, I had some of that fart spray in my car that we, you know, you mess with people. And uh, I took it and he left his car door unlocked. So I opened it and I sprayed the entire <laughs> roof of his car on the inside with that fart uh, spray, locked his door and shut it. Um, and and so that guy never played any more jokes on me again. But that same guy, <laughs> funny story, what I wasn't I was there, but I wasn't the one that did it. This same guy loved to play oh, jokes. Oh sure, sure. I was there. <laughs> I saw it, officer, but it wasn't caveat out there. In full disclosure, this was a a outdoor movie theater that we would go park because there was heels because you know your seats didn't recline because your cage so we would go to the back of this this outdoor movie theater and park on the back row because there was an angle and you could you could kind of rest your eyes for a few minutes at night if you needed to because you had all your your buddies there with you well one of the guys got out to pee so he jumps out of his car, throws it in drive, locks his door, shuts it. And this car is going over <laughs> these hills up toward the thing. Finally, it hits something slow. It didn't damage it, but it hit something slow and stopped it. But that was just the kind of stuff on Late Watch, man. It was always, Whoa. I mean, you had to keep yourself entertained somehow. Whoa, that, that's pretty drastic there. <laughs> had to keep eyes in the back of your head, too, just so yeah. these other sons of bitches didn't sneak up on that's you. It, they get you. 
That's one of the most drastic uh, practical jokes I've heard. Oh, no, it was funny, I, though. We just, I, I mean, you died last. I told you this one. I may have told you this one, Murph, but um, when I when I was a police officer, um, our cars were keyed the same. And one of the guys, I was the street supervisor that night. And I would always tell guys, don't check out on the radio when you're working midnight shifts. You know, go home, just call in. When you get back in, you go back in service, just call in service. We don't want, you know, we weren't that big of a department. We didn't want the bad guys who could listen in on the scanner to know where you mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. And this one guy just wouldn't do it. So I finally decided I got to teach him a lesson. And so he goes home every morning at 3 a.m. Tim Schultz, if you're listening, I apologize for this. Um, <laughs> he came back out. He hung out. He came back out to his house, out of his house, and he's got two hot dogs in one hand and a can of Coke in the other. Well, I had hidden in the back of the old big Chevy Impalas. You know, they had the cage there with the plexiglass, slid the screen over. He sits down. He's he's sitting there. He just sat down. He's got two hot dogs in one hand and a Coke in his other. I reached through the screen, put my hand around his mouth, and I go, don't move, cop. Oh, <laughs> that'll get you. Yeah. He's, he squeezed those hot dogs, squeezed the Coke, and it was like, you son of a bitch. Okay. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. want to kill you after that one. Yep, me too. <laughs> Let me tell you what, though. He never checked out on the radio again. I guarantee it. <laughs> See, that's, that's, that's a leadership trick. You got to learn these leadership tricks, how to motivate your men (laughs) Uh, digression, but it's in the, it's in the vein of uh, telling jokes. So let's start working our way up into uh, March 13th of 2020, because that's when this shooting happens. Um, You've been working the streets quite a long time now. You're back out on the streets now. You you did your time of patrol, then you went back out. So let's start working up to this. What kind of work were you during doing, uh, let's say the two years leading up to March, 2020? I had moved up to our, narc- our major narcotics unit, um, and up until September of 2019, from from 17 to 2019, um, I was over major case, which had TFOs and FBI and DEA. Uh, we did wiretaps. We did larger cases, um, and so it was a good time. I learned a lot, uh, did a lot of things with the guys, stayed busy every night. I mean, you know, you think you're getting off at six and six at night. And next thing you know, you're calling your wife at eight going, "Eh, I'm not going to make dinner. Then calling her back at 10 going, yeah, just go to bed. I'll see you when I see you. And that happened over and over and over. And so when it got to the point where I knew I was coming up close to the end of my career, I wanted to do about 25 years. Um, but I'd seen guys that had just gone full bore, which I'd done. Everything had been a hundred miles an hour to this point. This was 19 years in. So I'd gone a hundred miles an hour my entire career. And I've seen these guys that were lazy slugs get paid the same as me doing absolutely nothing their whole career, but that's on them, whatever. That's boring. I didn't want to do that. So I'm going, going, but I, but I'd seen these guys retire like me that went from a hundred miles an hour to nothing. And I thought, I don't want to do that because then those guys, they're looking for what we talked about earlier, that next adrenaline rush. They're looking and they do things stupid. They drink too much. They go out on their wife. They do different things to get that little feeling back of what they missed. And so I thought, well, I need to start tapering off. You know, I don't want to totally quit doing what I'm doing, but I'm going to start tapering off these last few years. Uh, there was a, a an opening in our, in our parcel interdiction unit. We went to UPS, FedEx, and it was a fun unit. It was small. There was me and three other guys. And we would go out at night and we'd fill six foot tables up with dope to the ceiling off 20 packages from UPS. So it was shooting fish in a barrel. So how did you, let's talk about that for a second. How, did you receive training or how did you go about profiling these packages? How did you know, were you running dogs, x-rays? How were you, how were you identifying these packages? Well, they, they got this system together before I went back there. Um, it had been in place for years. They have a, a computer system that they can use that shows you inbound where they're coming from. Cause 
we're fortunate in Louisville on this end that we are the main hub for UPS. There's over 2 million packages a day that come through Louisville. Um, now they would only allow us out there one night a week because they didn't want their name getting put out, you know, like, Oh my gosh, UPS is the biggest dope, dope dealer in, in the country. Cause they are. <laughs> and um, so, so we would go out there. We would, we would look at source cities where they were going um, then we would pull the the names and addresses off of them and look through Accurant or Clear or one of those programs to see if it matched up. We pull Google Maps and you look at this, you know, overnighted six hundred dollar package going to this total total horrible house in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, so you, all these flags would come up. Then you pull those packages aside, you set them out with regular packages. There'd be three good packages, one bad one, or you put them down the line of, of the normal packages. Then you bring the canine in, they'd run the packages, they'd alert. Um, if they alerted, you pulled it, you start writing a warrant on it because we only had like a two hour window where you grab the packages off the belt, ran it, had to get the warrant signed because you had to pop them open because if they were good packages and sometimes they were, you'd have to tape them back up and get them on the plane before it went out at five 30 in the morning. So, um, it was very quick once you got there and, and I was trained by the sergeant before me. I kind of shadowed him because I, I said, I didn't want to do what I did when I went into narcotics and have to learn it myself. Cause this was, this was a totally different animal. It was still dope, but it was a different animal. Yeah. So, and you guys had it, like you say, because you're impacting business, you, you got to work pretty quickly because for UPS, if it's a legitimate package, it's got to be on that plane or that truck or and getting delivered. Yeah. 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 And, and so it wasn't just police work. There was a lot of PR work involved too. You had to you had to schmooze the bosses out there, keep them on your good side because, like what you said, you're going to impact their business, which then reflects down on them. They get in trouble by their upper commands. You know how it is, and so that was a huge integral part of it. You know, being as a boss, you had to go out there and talk to these people and, and let them reassure them that what you're doing is on the up and up. Um, they would come in while we're opening packages, especially money packages. We wanted one of their people there. We had cameras going. We'd count it in front of them, bag it up, send it off, um, just because we didn't want any possibilities of, of impropriety. Man, so during that time, give us an give us an idea of like the amount of dope and money you seized, uh, even one day a week. Yeah, so um, there was nights we get say you'd get a, a huge table full. Mo usually the six foot you know fold out tables, what we put it on. Uh, the majority was always weed, but then we'd get every week a kilo of something fentanyl. Uh, heroin, cocaine, uh, they'd be packaged in, in anything from porcelain lamps to microwaves to kids' cars. Uh, we got deep freezers with stuff lined in them. I mean, all kinds of stuff that comes through there. They had, like I said, over 2 million packages a night come through there. We would, at the most, we'd pull 20 packages because that's all the, that time would allow. We'd pull 20 packages, go through them, and probably 16, 17 of them were positive. And uh, it, it was just amazing. And so you had to think, man, we're pulling 16 a week out of 2 million, six days a week, 12 million packages. And we're pulling 20 of them. And this is what we're getting. How much are we missing? Well, that's the thing out of 2 million packages. How many of them, if you could, if you could look at every package, how many packages would get seized? You know, 10%, I, yeah, 15%? Who knows, man? Who knows? Anything come from the West Coast? <laughs> Or southern, <laughs> the southern border area. Yeah, we used to have a we had a joke too. There was a couple times Kansas used to have their county designation on the uh, uh, license plate, so you could tell what county it was. And we used to joke there were a couple counties where if you had that tag and you're out in our area, that was probable cause not only to stop but to arrest. So there was no reason. Yeah, that's like when I did that interview with Strahan. He was like, "Man, does does is there racial profiling?" And I threw him off. I went, "Yeah, there is." And he went, he sat back in his chair, and I went. 
anytime in our West End, which is 99% black, predominantly black, I said anytime, because we butt up to Indiana, Louisville, there's a mm-hmm. river, Indiana's right there. It's a five-minute drive. And I said, anytime we'd see a white person with Indiana tags in the West End, we'd pull them over because they 99% of the time had drugs in the car. They were there to buy dope. And so he was like, wait a minute, so you, you profile white people? I'm like, that's how it works, man. I said, the rest of it's criminal profiling. We don't pro- how can you profile a black person? It's profiling, with the, it's profiling with the small P. People get it wrong. They think it's profiling with the big P. It's profiling with the small P. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and my, my, because he came to, he came to me and said, his rebuttal was, well, I've been racially profiled. I went, how many times you've been pulled over one time in his life? One time. Yeah, but I'm a, I was a black man in a, in a nice car, so they just assumed it. And then when he came up and saw who it was, he told me he was a big fan, and I didn't get a ticket. I said, wait a minute. Were you speeding? No. I said, do you ever speed? He went, no. I went, were you lying? Because we all speed. I've gotten speeding tickets as a cop, so I know you're lying. <laughs> me too. And me I too. said. From the state police? Did you get it from the state police? <laughs> I did. Tennessee. Tennessee. Damn yeah, them. Yeah. Right. THP. Uh, this was after I got shot. It was just, it was bizarre. But anyway, uh, troopers are different. You guys are weird. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Just and, in that uh, aspect, y'all don't cut anybody's brakes. Shut the hell up, Murph. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, uh, uh, where was I on this? Uh, Michael Strahan getting oh, pulled yeah, over yeah. speeding. So, everybody does. Yeah. So, I said, so you've been pulled over one time in your life, and you didn't get a ticket, and you call that racial profiling? So, just the mindset of these people out here is amazing. How how skewed it is, and and what they think reality is compared to reality. And I'm like, dude, you need to come do a ride along with some cops and get your get your head around this because you've got it all wrong. Well, and that's like the folks who used to say, you just pulled me over because I'm X and they insert their race. And I'm going, look, it's it's 11 o'clock at night. I'm coming at you at 55 miles an hour. You're coming at me at 75 miles an hour. So that's 130 miles an hour closure. And somehow I'm able to pick out your height, weight, race, sex, hair, eye color at 130 miles an hour at 11 o'clock at night with bright lights in my face. Exactly. Yeah. It's Uh, it's asinine. Most of it is. Yeah. I've had, John, I've had, uh, I've had Hispanic suspects accuse me of being racist because they were Hispanic. <laughs> my, both of my daughters are adopted from Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> you racist I don't think bastards. Racist. You know, it's, like, it's like my son-in-law is black and I've got two biracial grandkids and people mm-hmm. call me that all the time. And I'm like, okay, you know, yeah. you know, he's been in our family since they were in seventh grade. I mean, you know, uh, there, if there was an opportunity, if I was racist, there was an opportunity for me to squelch that and, and discourage it from my daughter, but he's a good guy. So I didn't care. Just treat my daughter. Right. Right. Uh, well, anyway, we're going to get into that. So let's, cause I think that kind of leads into what we're talking about. So let's start laying the groundwork. But the thing I wanted to focus on too, was the amount of work you have to do. Uh, and that's why I'm glad you talked about the packages because there were, there's a lot of controls in place when you start doing things like this, everything from policy procedure, uh, you've got cameras, you have to have somebody else in there, you know, uh, you have to have a, another person in there, you know, third party authentication and control. I mean, you guys put all these stuff in place, not because you you're bad and corrupt. It's because you want integrity in the outcome. You don't want the a, a defense attorney to be able to challenge the results. So let's start talking about working up towards uh, March 13th. So let's start laying the groundwork for this. What unit were you in? What was going on? How did this thing start coming about? Okay. So like I said, I just transferred to this parcel unit. And to, to frame it a little bit, uh, about two years before I went there, they used to work with Postal also. So it was FedEx, UPS, and Postal, the three you know main carriers that we have here. We didn't have DHL. It's up in Northern Kentucky. Um, so LMPD 
and postal, the postal inspector got into a beef uh, two years before I went there. And it was such a huge deal and caused so much strife and drama between the two agencies uh, that they totally cut ties. And UPS didn't work with LMPD. LMPD didn't work with UPS. They decided, or United States Postal Service, they decided to go with a, a smaller agency on the outskirts of our city, which is fine. I knew the guys that worked that agency. They're good guys. And when in two, in January of 2020, so the department started a new unit. I'm in narcotics. The department started a brand new unit called uh, Place-Based Investigations. Now, they got this unit from a protocol or a, or a model from Cincinnati. And what that does, is it's, it's a very um, precise unit that pinpoints targets and strictly goes after that one target until they've, they've exhausted all means of investigation. And then they move to the next target. And so one of the, the detectives in this unit, their brand new detect, the brand new unit, this was their very first case ever. This Brianna Taylor case was, and they come to me, the, the lead detective and says, Hey, can you run a name and an address and see if they get any packages there? I said, through which company? He said, through postal. And I said, dude, I have zero contact with postal. I don't have their numbers. I don't know who they are. I've never met them. I don't know them at all. I said, but I do know the guys that do know them. I can hook you up with them and you can, and you all can work it out. He said, that's cool. So while he's standing there in front of me, I text the sergeant and the detective at that unit in a group text. And I said, do you have anything on Jamarcus Glover at 3003 Springfield Apartment 4? I got the response back, man, that name sounds familiar. We just did a package. We just pulled a package on a Glover. Let me get back with you. I showed Josh, who was the detective. I showed him the text. I exchanged their numbers, and I thought I was done with it. About two weeks later, I see their lead their lead detective uh, from Shively at UPS. He works security out there. We were pulling boxes, and we just happened to run into each other. And I went, hey, Mike, I said, did you ever get that information for Josh? He went, yeah, I talked to Kelly, who was Josh's co-lead on this case. It was Josh and Kelly. And he said, I talked to Kelly. We were talking about the vehicles. They didn't match up. We realized I had the wrong Glover. We had like a, a Jeffrey Glover and they have Jamarcus Glovers, both Jay Glovers, both getting packages. So just a weird coincidence. And there's not many coincidences in police work, but that was a weird coincidence. And I said, cool, I could care less. Not my case. I have nothing in it. I go back to the office the next morning. Josh is walking toward me. I said, Josh, did you get the message? I talked to Mike last night. He said, it's the wrong Glover. He said, yeah, Kelly told me it's the wrong Glover. And dang, now I got to write all these warrants. I was hoping to just do a rip or a, or a reversal on, on these packages. Now I got to write all these warrants. I was like, sorry, dude. That was the extent of my involvement in this investigation. Now, little did I know that would come back to haunt us mo five months later. Uh, but we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but that's that's where I was at the time. And that's that's kind of the groundwork. Yeah, just lay a little bit of the groundwork. Just don't talk about it, but just tie it into it. When you say that's going to come back to haunt you five months later, it's because you had additional information or you had some other insights. What was the gap that it had it been filled that day might have prevented whatever might have happened? Well, later on in that warrant, the wording they used, so they had pictures of Jamarcus Glover. They've got pictures of him walking in Breonna Taylor's apartment empty-handed, coming out with postal packages. So there's no doubt he was getting them there. But what I tell people all the time, because I did this for however many years and then however many months, just parcels, because previously we dealt with parcels as well on the street because people always get dope sent to them. Um, 
but the common the common denominator is if John Mattingly's getting dope sent to him, do you think I'm going to send it in my name? Heck no. I exactly. want that plausible deniability if it comes to my door. And better yet, I'm not sending it to my door. I'm sending it to a girlfriend's door, a vacant apartment, a baby mama, something. And that happened all the time. They'd, they'd send it two houses down to a vacant house. UPS had no idea. They'd drop it off the porch and leave. They'd have one of the kids walk down, pick the package up, bring it back. We'd go hit the house. So for him even asking me, does he have anything in his name? I guess that's crossing your T's and dotting your I's in investigations, but it also shows a lack of knowledge in what goes on with packages. Um, and so Jamarcus Glover did get packages from Rihanna Taylor at that house and took them down. But unfortunately, the, the detectives put in the warrant that the postal inspector verified that Jamarcus Glover was getting packages there, and he did not verify it. But that wording was in the warrant. Um, and that wasn't even brought to our attention until I think a uh, the warrant got posted in late April, maybe early May, and the postal inspector saw the warrant and read it and was like, oh, I never said that. And he got on the news and said that, that this wasn't me. I didn't never said it because he still had an axe to ground with LMPD. He could have backdoor channeled LMPD and said as a postal inspector and said, hey, guys, you've got a problem here. Instead, he went to the media. Because he he saw his opportunity to take where he got his feelings hurt a couple of years earlier, and and he used it. And the sad what thing you, is, what's that? What do you mean he got his feelings hurt? Was there an operation that went on that uh, what he didn't get to play or what? Yeah, I really don't want to get into detail, but there was there was some postal employees that had gotten wrapped up in some investigations, and they were butt hurt that they weren't informed about it. Um, you know, they thought they should have been in on the loop. Uh, when they weren't. So they fired those employees. They threatened to charge them. It was just a big scandal. And then on top of that, they wanted some private records that LMPD had that that we had to go to court and fight just to even keep them from getting them. Um, and so it was just a big mess. It was a big contest of who's who's got more juice. And he lost on that one. And he was pretty upset about it. Um, so that brought us to that day or to that investigation, which if we had had direct contact with him, things would have been a lot easier because I could have just called right there on the spot, squelched all these issues. Um, but instead it went through, it was the telephone game going through different parties, different times, two weeks here, a week here. And, um, and you know, I, I gave these detectives the benefit of the doubt for months, defended them on podcasts and stuff and said, man, when you're doing five warrants at one time, you're not sitting down one day and just knocking out five warrants. It's not the way it works. It's just like investigative letters. It's just like case files. You build these warrants as you, you go. Build it. Yep. And as you get that information, you're plugging it in. And if he saw that original text message and said, good possibility, this is the same Glover, I could see him plugging that in right there with the with the forethought of thinking, if that comes back negative, I'll just take it out later and put in that I saw him with the package. And that never happened. And come to find out, I think, Kelly knew for sure, and she left it in the warrant anyway, and they even got together after the fact and went to Josh's garage to say, well, we'll just we'll just say Mattingly told us, and they can't prove he didn't, but then she got hemmed up on some other federal stuff, and, and she ratted him out saying that's what they did. So it's pretty messy. You know, this, this case is messy enough and ugly enough, and this just throws one more crink into it that just – Okay. Well, we'll leave that for the back end of it now, too, because I just wanted to set a little additional context. Because, look, I'll tell you, it's unfortunate, but um, that's why I wanted to ask you about the postal inspector, because sometimes you have to, when people talk, you have to look at them and go, okay, 
why are you talking? What's your agenda? What's what's underneath the statement you're giving, right? So I kind of wanted to put that out there. So let, let's start talking about this. So um, they're working up these warrants. Like I said, you're just peripherally involved. You're not even the main lead. So tell us about that day. How do you end up being out there with them? So about two weeks before the warrant, their sergeant put out an email to all of, of, of narcotics um, saying, we need additional bodies. This is a, a, a large operation, manpower intensive. We got five warrants we're doing. SWAT's hitting a couple of them, but we need bodies for the rest of them. Plus, we need bodies for once SWAT leaves, you know, to go in and handle these places, these locations. He put the addresses out. I looked at the addresses and I said, man, West End, West End, West End, West End. South end, here's an apartment as opposed to these trap houses in the West end, because you and I both know you go in these trap houses, they're nasty. There's feces, there's dirt, there's roaches because these guys are just coming in for the day, selling their dope and getting out. Half these houses are vacant anyway. So plus when you do anything in an urban area like that, as soon as the police get there, what happens? You get a crowd of 50 to 100, 200 people gather around saying stuff, doing stuff. And I was just tired of it. I had done this stuff for so many years. I was like, give me the easy one. That's what I thought. Give me the easy one. I'll take the apartment in the south end that's 10 miles away and not attached to this stuff. Um, so that's what I did. I said, I, I even emailed him back, said, give me spring. If, if you can give me Springfield, if not, I'll go wherever you need me. So he gave me Springfield uh, as the sergeant on that one. And that kind of brought us to the night of March 12th. Well, and so when you pick Springfield, you have, I mean, you've got really no prior information. That's just for you. It's just an issue of convenience, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. It was, it was a selfish motive for me to take that. And people ask me, you know, when we did our civil deposition, I was asked by their attorney, kept hammering, well, you knew it was, you knew it was Brown and Taylor's apartment. You knew that the information in the warrant wasn't accurate because you're the one that checked on it. And I said, well, it's true. I checked on it, but Number one, as in our parcels, we're doing, you know, 40, 50 warrants a week where I'm, I'm looking at addresses, I'm looking at names. I said, if I was that smart to remember two and a half months back a name or an address from something that I had no involvement in, never physically saw it, never typed anything on paper, never had any any other contact with it, I said, I'd be brilliant. I'm not that smart. I'm just a cop. You know, if I was that smart, I wouldn't be here. And um, so I told you. I'd be him, a lawyer asking me these dumbass oh, no, questions. No yeah. kidding. So I was like, you know, that 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 wasn't even in my head when I looked at that. I chose that spot based on I didn't want to dig through nasty feces and, and grime. That, that's what that was about. And, and by that time, too, and I just want to clarify, too, you, when you say, I mean, your involvement was so minimal, you wrote nothing. You've got nothing other than sending a group text, putting people in touch. I mean, you've got no official paperwork uh, that you have filed or that you have that you have created on this uh, warrant. Right. That's exactly right. And now you're just basically you're a body. I mean, you're your body I'll out help. there to go out to help. Yep, that's it. And you said that was March 12th. So what's how how do things how do things pan out over the next 24 hours? Well, that 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 email was two weeks prior. That led us up to March 12th. So the day of March 12th, I had been out to UPS, their day facility, um, or their ground facility. After that, we went out to FedEx. And all these, all these places we go, FedEx, UPS, you sign in or you badge your way in. There's cameras. They know when you're there and when you're gone, right? It's not like it's a loose facility anybody can come and go from. So we left our FedEx facility at 930 because the, the warrant briefing was at 10 o'clock. Um, get to the briefing. There's about 50 guys in a room. Uh, they go over all the stuff on the board. 
I happened to take a picture of the board because every they said every warrant signed as a no-knock, but we're going to do this one, which is the one I had, Brianna Taylor's apartment, as a, a knock and announce. Why, why was that one the exception? So the whole reason for a, a no-knock, it's not just based on the on the – on the house. It's, it's mainly based on who you're dealing with. So you've got uh, the suspect and what kind of crimes they have in the past, whether they have video cameras, whether they're part of a, a criminal syndicate, if they have watchdogs, you know, all these different things, guards at the door, uh, screen doors that are locked or, or you know, the, the security doors. So all those things take, take into effect. Well, the main thing was Jamarcus Glover was why they got these no knocks. And they had a tracker on his car. They had a ping on his phone. They had eyes on him. They knew at that point he was not going to Springfield that night. He was headed to the trap house. So they made the call to say they were doing the right thing. They said, this no longer fits the parameters of a no-knock. Even though it's signed as a no-knock, we're going to knock and announce. There's probably only paperwork and money there, probably no dope. And so when you get in there, they say, knock. They even said this, which, you know, I tell people to go with your gut. I didn't go with my gut here. I got lazy, I guess. They said, give, they made this exact statement in the briefing in front of everybody. She's going to be a heavy set black woman. Give her extra time to come to the door because they wanted her on board, right? They wanted her to testify against Glover to see what they could do. So the plan was go out there and knock and not just do a normal warrant where you're banging, banging, police search warrant, police search warrant, boom, hit the door, go. And we're also not doing the no knock. Now we're doing basically a courtesy knock where you're knocking, 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 wait, knock, 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 wait until they come to the door. And that was the plan. Uh, obviously, the plan didn't go as we had hoped. Well, let's rewind for just a second on that because we're talking about Glover. In today, in your mind, and even back then, is there any doubt in your mind that Glover was involved in the trafficking of narcotics with these trap houses and other stuff? Is there any doubt in your mind? No, he had been, they had already served two warrants on him. Um, he had been locked up in January of that year of 2020 with, I think, six six or seven guns and a bunch of dope, a bunch of meth, a bunch of heroin. Um, so this guy was a frequent flyer. He had, I think, five felony pending cases in circuit court at the time of this warrant. He should have never been out of jail, but they just kept letting him out, letting him out, letting him out. And Brianna's the one that actually bailed him out in January, just two months prior to uh, the warrants taking place. I, I just want to say, I don't want to get into the, the probable cause associated with getting a search warrant for Rihanna Taylor's apartment. And, and, and our listeners, if you don't know, this is not, we're not trying to crucify Brianna or anybody else on here. We're just trying to, we want to give John the opportunity to tell his side of the story because so much rhetoric is out there. But two of the things that stuck out in my mind uh, as I was reading your book is one, there are video surveillances of Jamarcus, uh, I just Glover. Saw Glover. Glover going to Brianna's apartment empty-handed and coming out. Two, he's seen in two different cars that are registered to Brianna Taylor using her cars. And three, the the address on his driver's license is her address. Is that all the right? The address on his correct? driver's license, her address. The address on his license, her address. His bank account is to her address. His phone bill is to her address. When they bailed him out of jail two months prior, he used her address. So everything pointed there. You know, there's nothing from a from a detective standpoint that you would look back and go, oh, there's no connection, you know, right. anymore. We're seeing him there. We're seeing her go down, drive him down to the trap house. That's on video, her driving him there. So everything points to that. Whether their PC at, the, at that time was uh, refreshed enough, you know, that's for a court to decide, not us. But um, would I have done it different? Possibly. 
But well, a court did decide. Right. A court a court looked at all of the information and said there's probable cause to oh, issue yeah. search warrants. Yeah, right. the probable cause wasn't the issue. I think the issue was uh, when some of that probable cause took place, whether it was a month ago, whether it was two weeks ago, whether it was two months ago, you know, whatever it was. So, um, I, you know, there was just some mistakes made. But again, you had a very young crew who had just been brought over there. This is their first case. And here's the peculiar part, okay? So in my book, I talk a little bit about it where the gentrification of this Elliott Avenue, which is where the trap houses were. I've got a map that was sent out by the mayor's office that showed everything on that street that had been taken by the city, confiscated. They needed these two houses that these warrants were going to before they could start development. And the owners wouldn't give them up. Now, I have never seen this in my 21 years on the department. This is the only time I ever saw it. Every Monday, the mayor's uh, a representative from the mayor's office and three of our lieutenant colonels, assistant chiefs, would come into our office and take this crew that was doing this investigation into a room, and they would get updated on where they stood on this because the mayor's office was pushing this. We got to get this done. This is their first case by this new unit that the mayor's office developed, and now the mayor's office representative is there pushing for information on where do we stand on this? Where do we stand on this? Where are we at? So a lot of man, funny business, it just doesn't add up. Once, you, once you're away from it, looking at it, you go, okay, now I understand why the dominoes fell the way they did. Yeah. There's a lot more in the background of the story that it's not coming to light, you know, yes. and nobody's addressing. Right. And it falls on deaf ears when you try to give it to there. people. Yeah. And it's easier to throw scapegoats out there. Right. Yeah. They don't want to take responsibility because then, you know, they're held responsible for it. And they, it's, that's not what they want. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that comes from a lack of cojones. You know, when you stand up and go, oh yeah, we did, we didn't do it right. Or we did it right. And we're holding our ground, you know, but at some point you, you got to have faith in your leadership. And, and that's why I say there's a difference between leaders and managers. And there are poor people, there are people out there who should have never had a, a, a supervisory role because they're not leadership material. Um, but hey, rant over on that. Let, let's let's go back and talk about that too, just a little bit. Even if it may be just a little old, the fact is it was an ongoing. I mean, you would look at this almost like Rico. You know, it's an ongoing conspiracy. This is stuff that continues to happen. It's not like it only happened once. When you look back at the record, and again, we're not like Steve says. It's not here to bash people. The, the thing we want to do is dig into the context. It's so easy to do, throw out a tweet and put up a Facebook post and take one little piece and make an entire argument around it without having the sophistication to get into the context to say, what was going on here? What was happening? So when you look back, like you said, like Steve was talking about in your book, let's just document a, a little bit more the extent of Brianna Taylor's contacts with Jamarcus Glover. Do you know how long their relationship existed by that point? I think it was four years. I believe that's what it was. Uh, it had been off and on for quite a quite a, quite a long time. Um, even a couple of months before, probably about January, when she bailed him out, uh, Kenneth Walker, her current boyfriend at the time, was at her house, and and Glover showed up, apparently upset that they were together, or there was some kind of of uneasy situation that happened between the two guys and her. And, and some people, you know, when we get into the story in a little bit, the, some people say, well, maybe that's why he thought, you know, it wasn't the police at the door because he had had this kind of beef with her boyfriend who was not a good guy and he wasn't a good guy himself, but this guy was even a, a worse guy. And, um, and so I don't know, you know, all this stuff plays into it. 
Well, let's start talking about that then. So you've, you've got, you do all this stuff on the 12th. Um, walk us through now the next, you know, few hours. When do, when do things start coming together and the raid starts getting, uh, you know, everybody starts coalescing for the raid? Yeah, well, I can tell you when things started going bad was right after right after the the brief. I go out to my car, I grab the tools, the ram, and the pick. I go out to my car, and I've got two flat tires on my driver's side. And I look at the car behind me in the parking lot, and it's got a couple of flat tires. So obviously, somebody walked through the parking lot poking tires. So did now, they know they were cop? Did they know they were cop? Yeah, okay. we had no. And this was our complaint for years. We had an open parking lot where the narcs parked their cars. That is the building we use is. A, a, a joining building with other city workers. So everybody knows who we were uh, and where we're at. So they come by and take pictures of our car. So it was almost impossible to go do surveillance in certain areas and stuff. Um, but again, that's short-sightedness on, on quote, leadership. Um, so after that, it's it, now it's starting to rain. I mean, it's pouring down outside. I go in, I can't find a pool car. I'm looking all over the place. The keys are locked up in our, in our, uh, the, the other sergeant's, uh, lock box. So I finally find a car. It's a piece of crap, but I get it. And now I'm kind of rushed because we, you know, you do your main brief with everybody. Then you go to your secondary location, which is usually about a half a mile from your target area. And you re, re you rebrief there to make sure everybody that you've got on your team's on the same page. And so, it's raining. I'm moving all my equipment from my car to this pool car. Well, I forget a couple of things. One of them being my tourniquet, because when I didn't have it on my vest, when I wasn't wearing my vest, I had it in my glove box, so I'd have accessibility to it. Second thing I forgot was my uh, extra mag case down in my door, door because it was just a paddle that slid in. And so I didn't realize all that until it was time to hit the door, and I'm like, well, I'm screwed now. Let's just do it. But so all that took place. Uh, I finally get a car. I get out there. I pull up and I look up at EMS. I'm trying to get their attention. I'm hitting with a flashlight, hitting with the horn. Finally, they look at me and, and it's two really young guys. I mean, like my kid's age. And I'm thinking, man, I hope these guys aren't the ones that saved my life if something needs to happen. I even told the guy with, that, that I talked to, I said, man, these aren't the guys. They're just not it. You could tell. And so we go and I say, guys, I'll be back. We did our little brief. I went because I wanted to get eyes on this apartment. I'd never seen it. And if I'm the VO, you know, I've got to know exactly which one it is. So there's a guy that's on their team. What's a VO? Uh, a verification officer. It's the guy who sees the door and goes, this is the right door to hit. Um, so the guy who's been on the eye, who's on the actual squad that we're helping out, is watching this apartment. I call him on the phone. I pull through. He points to me to which apartment it is. There's a plumbing van right outside of it. I can see the door. He tells me which one. So I go back. I tell the guys, let's load up and go. We line up. We wait for SWAT because we were hitting them simultaneously. So when SWAT said we're unloading, that's when we hit. That's when we headed our way. And uh, that's what we did. Once uh, SWAT said they're unloading, we pulled up and and got out of the car and approached the door. And uh, when we got there, the there was a a, a little wrench in it. I pull up and there's a Sequoia parked, a white 04 Sequoia parked right in front of the apartment, but it's perpendicular or parallel to the sidewalk, but perpendicular to the other cars in the, in the parking lot. And the eye didn't tell us that this car had pulled in. So I got on the radio and I'm a little bit mad at this point because it's pretty vital if a car pulls right in front of your target location, you don't know where that person went. And you just used the term, the eye. You say so VO is a verification officer, let people know what the eye is. The eye is the guy watching the apartment or watching the house during the time leading up to the warrant. So if anything, anybody comes or goes, if anything changes of importance, they let you know. And somehow this wasn't uh, expressed to us what was going on with this vehicle. 
So I get out and I'm a little, I'm a little mad about that. Not at the person, just at the situation, because you're going to do going into a blind location. I want to know all everything I can know about it. So I clear this car. It's empty, but I'm glad that car pulled up and I'll tell you why in a second. I, we go up to the door and this is an eight plex. Okay. You've got four doors on the bottom, one on the left, one on the right and two straight back. Same thing up top. There's a metal staircase to the right hand side, which goes up and Brianna Taylor's door is right underneath that apartment four, right underneath that staircase. Well, the guy who got, who pulled up in that van, fortunately went up to the upstairs apartment right above hers. And when I go down there, I knock two times normal on the door, just normal knocks, hoping she'd just come to the door. Go ahead. And this is a ground floor apartment is what you're saying. Correct. This is ground floor. So I go up and I knock on this door two different times, two different cadences of knocks, hoping she would just come to the door doing what they ask us to do. You know, generally by this time, we're already hitting the door. We're in, we're clearing. We've got the psychological advantage. We're, We're loud. We're all this stuff. So after two regular knocks and she didn't come, we switched it over. Now you've got the police knock on the door, which is an open hand, heavy bang on the door. And everybody knows what that everybody sounds like. It's like, knows bam, bam, police, bam, police come to the door. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and with that were the verbal commands, please search warrant, come to the door if you're inside, please search warrant. Because when I pulled up, I could see the, the bedroom light flickering from the TV. So I, we knew somebody was in there. But let's be clear about something too, because there's everybody um, always says, well, you didn't knock and announce. Let's just clear that up. When you this after your first rounds of polite knocks, let's say, and you went to the cop knock, you, who was the one issuing the verbal commands? Was that you? It was me. Yeah. Any, I mean, and no doubt, I mean, you were saying it loud well, enough that yelling it. Yeah, you're going to hear it, especially through apartment walls. Yeah, you're going to hear it. And this took there was an additional probably four to five rounds of that with the open hand and the yelling because right before we hit the door, that the the knock before we hit the door. Uh, the guy on the ram who I was on the left side of the door, he was on the right because it swung from left to right and opened up. Uh, he said, hold on, I think I heard somebody. So we st- I stopped what I was doing and I yelled again, please search warrant, come to the door if you're inside. No response. I knocked one more time. And after that, I looked back at my lieutenant and he gave the nod. But before that happened, after I first started the, the heavy bang, the guy who had pulled up in the Sequoia that went upstairs popped out of that door. He heard us. And there's an argument between him and one of the the detectives down below because, you know, they addressed a threat not knowing who he was or what he was doing because he came out yelling. And and he was like, what are y'all doing? Leave her alone. All this stuff. And uh, he, was, he was saying he was yelling at you guys to leave Brianna Taylor alone. Yeah, I don't think he knew her. He was just we were being loud. You were it basically was, the police and he just wanted you out of there. Yeah, he was a foreign guy. So there was also a little bit of a, 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 a disconnect in language. Um, but, but they were yelling back and forth. And finally I looked back at the guy that was doing it because I'm focused here on this door. I can't see him because he's upstairs. This guy back here can see him because he's just to the left or to the right of me where he can see up the steps and they're getting nowhere with this argument. So I'm banging on the door. I stop what I'm doing. I said, if he's not a threat, just relax and let it go because it was distracting everybody on scene. And so he did. The guy went back inside. He left it alone, and we continued doing what we were doing. So but by the that point, go ahead, yeah, Steve. The point here is that was loud enough that a man in an upstairs apartment heard you announcing yourselves. Yes, correct. Okay. And from the time you started that first knock till the time you said you did your last knock, that guy goes back in. What kind of a time frame are we talking? Was, One minute, two minutes? Yeah, it was about a minute. 
Yeah, okay. which seems which at a door feels like an eternity. It's an eternity because you and don't every, know what's on the other yeah, side of the door. Everything inside my head was going, "Why are we doing this? This isn't normal. Why are we doing this?" Because the last time on a warrant that I changed things up because somebody on scene asked me to, which was another sergeant, I got shot at through the door and almost killed. I got glass covered my body, cut up. The bullet hit about two inches behind me in a fence. Um, so I should have known then when, when my guts tell me, stop doing what somebody else asked me, just stop doing it and do what you're supposed to do. But, you know, you try to be cordial. You're just the, you're the visitor here. You're trying to do what they ask you to do. Um, uh, but it didn't turn out so well. So go ahead. So once, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so you, you've knocked on this door. You've done, he goes back in, you've done another knock. What happens at that point? So then that's when I look back at my lieutenant. He gives me the nod to go ahead because we had knocked, like you said, for about a minute on this door, two normal knocks, probably four or five different cadences of, of the loud police search warrant bangs on the door um, with no response. So I looked at the guy and I said, go ahead and hit it. The breacher, he hits the door the first time. It hits right on the, the deadlock, the deadbolt, which you know that's not going to knock a door open. He just miscalculated. And I remember one of the guys in the stack said, my daughter hits harder than that because, you know, we're always ribbing each other. So there was a little chuckle there. Then he hit it the second time, and, and the, I could see through the door. The deadbolt was bent, and I could see actually into the living room. And then the third time, I said, here it goes, and he hit it, and the door comes flying open. And at this point, everybody is yelling, please search warrant. Police search warrant, because that's just, it's been so ingrained in you. That's what you do. You do the same thing every time. How and many guys like, in the stack? There's seven total, including myself. So you got seven people yelling police search warrant, because that's like you say, you, it's it's psychological, it's overwhelming. You want no doubt that you're the police, that you're there to serve a search warrant because you want compliance. Yeah, and I don't, I didn't want to get shot. I mean, that's the whole point of it. You don't want them thinking you're another drug dealer robbing them. Right. And so when this happened, I could see... The living room from right to left, I could see the couch. I remember the color. And as soon as I get to the hallway, the door frame, because I was not in the fatal funnel, I was not in the doorway. I was to the left of it. And once my my field of vision ran out because of the door frame and the hall wall, I had to step into the doorway. And we're yelling, "Please search warrant!" And as soon as I took that that little right step over, you know, two feet. Um, and I, I turn from right to left as my as my gun light's coming around. I catch Kenneth Walker, him and Brianna are at the end of this hallway, this narrow, maybe three foot hallway, about thirty feet away, and it looked like just one big blob. They were overlapping one another, but one was taller, one was shorter. Um, so your mind's working super quick. I mean, like it's amazing how much the different thoughts that popped into my head at this moment. Like when I turned that corner and saw two people there, I said, "This ain't normal." This is different than anything I've ever encountered because usually people are giving up, they're running, they're hiding, they're doing something, they're screaming. They weren't screaming. They were just standing there in wait. And I went, oh, crap. And I saw the end of his gun, and it was too late. So I saw the silver tip, and I, boom, the shot went off. I never even got over to her. I, just, I stopped right there at him. And So uh, let's let's stop there for a second because I want to add a little bit more context. How were you dressed that night? Um, what 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 things identified you as a cop? So I had on plain clothes, but we had our police vest on that said police on the front, police on the back. Uh, yeah, that, that's a that was one of the huge things. Oh, they were they were in just regular clothes. Well, sure we were, but we also had an outer carrier over that said police, which is more identifiable than a guy in uniform, in my opinion. You know, you got the little bitty badge here. It doesn't say police on it. Um, so we were we were all vested up, uh, proper protocol there. 
And when, when that door came open, aside from him hearing, aside from seeing us, I don't know what more he needed to, to visualize that we were the police. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.